Let's have the little, uh, brilliant. Okay, so we're going to be looking at memes that matter, uh, but before we look at memes that matter, let's look at some memes that don't matter quite so much. First one, if at first you don't succeed, try doing it the way your wife told you. Second one, my wife made me coffee this morning and winked at me when she handed me the cup. I've never been more scared of a drink in all my life. And then I told her I'd only be gone hunting for a couple of hours. <laughs> That's not one that really that, uh, applies to me, but some of you here. This one, uh, it's great. It says, when wives say, go to the store, lay down the mulch, wash and, wash and wax the car, get the kids at school, rent some videos, and finish the rest of the dishes, what husbands hear is, go lay down and get some rest. <laughs> and then the last one, which kind of starts us off. Me, husband, why don't you wear socks to bed? Wife, why don't you fix the furnace? <laughs> now, I've, I've heard it said many times that uh, men think of sex once every eight seconds. And I don't know if it's true, but I know that every time that statistic is quoted, it makes men think of sex. <laughs> and so here I am in church quoting a statistic that brings to mind sex, which is a great way to start a sermon in my mind. But as you'll find out in a little bit, it's, um, it's an important place for us to start. Last week, we looked at the parent-child relationship that the child should love the parents with honor and the parents should love the child with engagement. This week, we're going to shift our focus to the husband and wife relationship. And we're going to be looking at this, that husbands love your wife with exclusivity and wives love your husband with anticipation. Now, the Bible tells us um, that sex is good, that husbands owe it to their wives, that married couples should have it often, and that it's not just about the kids. That's, that's, that's what an article that I recently read said. And I acknowledge that in this church, we have uh, single people, we have unhappily married people, we have people who are recently separated, we have people who are experiencing same-sex same attraction, um, we have people who God has called to singleness, as well as happily married people. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about marriage and sex. In fact, it means that we should preach on it uh, even more, because in our society, it's a big deal. And also in the Bible, it's a big deal. And for many of us, it either is a big deal in our life or we wish that it was a big deal in our life, right? You're either married and it is a big deal or you're not married 
and you wish it was a big deal. Um, so maybe it will, will be a big deal in the future. Um, and, and then for people who are called to singleness, who Christ is called to singleness, the absence of marriage and sex is a big deal. Now, at this church, we're all about uh, knowing Christ through, through the power of the Holy Spirit and growing in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and then showing Christ to others through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, like I've mentioned in a couple of Sundays, we're going to be having Service Sunday, which I'm very excited about where we get out of here into the community. And one of the best and most countercultural messages that we have for a confused world is God's idea of personhood and God's idea of sex. Now, in this country, um, one, one of the biggest fo um, forces that marriage has to contend with is that we are taught to look, our, look at ourselves not as a single, whole, united, holistic person, right? We're taught not to look at ourselves um, like that. Instead, we're taught to look at ourselves in two parts, the spirit and the soul on one hand, and then on the other hand is the body. And so our true selves, this is the world's thinking, um, so our true selves or the spirit is encased in this mobile storage unit known as the body. That's what we are taught. And so we watch the movie Avatar where the soul or consciousness of the person can go, can be removed from the body and inserted into the navi skin and You've not really lost a lot because, because the essence of that person is still there. That's what we're taught. That we have a soul, which is our authentic self, and then we have our body, which is kind of like an interchangeable sleeve that, um, that really has very few um, moral qualities. And so, in the mind of this world, the goal is to make the outside sleeve, our body, serve the true self inside. And this thinking has a name, it's called personhood theory. And in short, what personhood theory says is that, is that the fact that you're a human and the fact that you're a person are two very different things. So your humanity is your physical self. But your personhood is your soul, is your spirit, is your mind, is your self-awareness, is your consciousness. So you have your humanity and your personhood, and they are separate things. And it's this thinking that actually lies, lies behind um, you know, our big national conversation about what, what constitutes uh, gender and sex. It's, uh, it's this thinking that lies behind euthanasia. It's this thinking that lies behind abortion. It's this thinking that lies behind how we view sexuality. And so none of these thoughts are, uh, are original with me. And so if you want to learn more, I'd encourage you to read a book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. And uh, what she says in this book is this. She, she says, personhood theory sees, sees no value in the living body, but places all our worth in the mind or the consciousness. She also says this, that personhood theory entails a, a two-level dualism that sets the body against the person as though they were two things merely stuck together. 
and there's a show on Netflix which really gets into this thinking. Um, it's not a show I can recommend to you, but it's a show which is, uh, which is, which is very uh, helpful and, and just really shows this thinking, and it's, called, it's, and it's called Black Mirror. And it's this, and it's, it's this, it's this two... It's this view of, of us as humans as two separate things that has laid the groundwork for the normalizing of sex outside of marriage. So Nancy Piercy goes on to say this, if the body is separate from the person, then what someone does with their body sexually has no connection with who they are as a whole person. Okay, that's what personhood theory is. However, in the Bible, uh, we see a really different picture. Rather than merely being a physical act that has no moral value, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13, we are told that sex within the boundaries of marriage is an act of worship, not of each other, of the Lord, which is amazing. But what that also means is that, is that the misuse of sex is a sin against him. Now, we uh, like to think of ourselves as um, enlightened with our sex-positive way of looking at life, uh, where, where, where the sex act is unshackled from love or marriage or this lifelong saying, you know, you're the one. You know, if we can unshackle those, then, then we consider ourselves um, modern or now that, uh, um, that we've moved away from the old way of thinking. But, but this isn't a new way of thinking. In fact, the Greeks way back when were also thinking this. And in fact, it was such a prevalent um, way of life in the church, it's such a prevalent way of life in the culture, that some people in the church at Corinth were worshipping God on a Sunday morning, after which they'd go to the local pagan temple for a little something-something. You know? In other words... In their thinking, what was, what was happening to them in terms of meeting their bodily needs, it didn't matter because their true self, their soul, was left unsullied and untouched. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, and feel, feel free to turn there if you want. You say... Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will, will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? And then he goes on to say this, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And so what Paul's doing here is that he's raising um, the uh, value and the purpose of sex. He's saying it's more than a scratch that we need to itch. It's more than um, a need that we need to meet. Um, because he's saying that not only is the body and the spirit fused as one thing, but he's saying that we're also fused with, with the Lord. We are fused with Christ. So whatever happens to your body as a Christian in some way happens to Christ. Think about that. And so Jesus comes with you 
right into the bedroom. And this should raise our view of sex as something special and something amazing. Now I know that not, thinking of Jesus when we're going into the bedroom is not necessarily romance-inducing. It may not help you to get in the mood, but what it is saying is that sex is an act of worship. It's a picture of Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. And we see here that we have a God who is majorly pro-sex, which is why the Song of, Song of Solomon, which can get me a bit hot under the collar, made its way into the biblical canon. And so God is sex positive, not in the way that the world thinks, but in a way that preserves the image of God in each other and that builds families instead of tearing them down. Now, I remember hearing this great quotation that your wife should be your standard of loveliness, that, that when you look at her, you should, you should gaze, you should gauge all other women, you know, that, that, that she's the one. Right? But then, but then I also guess that it goes the other way, right? That your husband should be your standard of hunkiness, which is awesome. You're a blessed woman, Wendy. So, so let's turn to, yeah, to Proverbs, and we're going to allow God first to speak to the men, then we're going to allow God to speak to the women. And for the men, I'm going to look at one pretty heavy-duty heavy passage, Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. So please turn to it. Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. Proverbs 5, 15 through, through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. So straight away, we're in some pretty major heavy-duty euphemisms. Drink water from your own cistern, drink water from your own well. On, on Friday, the, the water in the manse quit working, and the water at the church quit working, and so I popped over to my friend Nathan over the road, and I used his shower. Then I went to Murray's next door, and I used his loo, and it was all very good. You know, one of those moments where you, where you get to know your neighbor by uh, popping into their water closet. And, you know, they, of course, said yes because they are nice neighbors. And so when you're talking about actual water in an actual well, making use of your neighbors is absolutely fine. But when it comes to sex, it's not okay. And so, men, you have needs and I have needs. Uh, we're thinking about it every eight seconds. And there you go again. You're thinking about it again. And if you're married to someone, then the person that you go to to, to to quench that thirst, to slake that thirst, is your wife. Verse 16 of Proverbs uh, 5 says this, Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another woman's, with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman. And so, 
what the writer here is saying is that you are to love your wife with focus, with single-mindedness, with exclusivity. And in this world's hypersexualized culture, it's so easy to look over your neighbor's fence to let your eyes wander, to start creating scenarios in your mind. And yet God, through the gift of sex within marriage, has offered you something amazing, something that the world can never offer, which is the sanity and the intimacy of one man loving one woman for richer, for poorer, or for better, for worse, until death us do part. And so when we look at the, at the imagery being used here, um, it, it, it talks about this spring and streams of water, and that's, a, that's, that's picture language uh, for the love that a husband offers a wife. And then the cistern, or the well, is a beautiful image of the wife receiving this love. So, so how this works, you know, if you're thinking about it mechanically or scientifically, whatever, is that the water of the, of the husband flows into the cistern of the wife, and then that cistern becomes a source of life and well-being for the man. It's a closed system. Not an isolated system, not an open system, but it's a closed system. And so that love, sorry, a closed system. So that love which is flowing, flow, flowing back and forth, satisfying and energizing both husband and, and wife. And this is, this is sort of the uh, image of mutual submission that we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. And so in... Proverbs 15, the motivator here, okay, what we've often heard in church is that you should be a good boy, okay, you should do the right thing, but that's not the motivation here, what the motivation here is, you get to do this, and it's flipping amazing, okay, that's what we're reading in Proverbs 15, because what it's saying is that as you invest yourself in one person intellectually, romantically, sexually, self-sacrificially, your investment actually pays off. Now, that's not to say it's not hard work. If, if love is an investment, then sometimes it might feel like your share price is maybe dropping a bit. But if you look at people over the span of their marriage who consistently say, I choose God and I choose you, then the general trend is up and up and up. And so, you know, one example is that Wendy and I have just celebrated our 15th anniversary, and I would say that our marriage is more fulfilling, more relaxed, and more hope-filled now than it has ever been. Yeah? Awesome. Okay. Verse uh, 21, for your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast for lack of discipline. They will die led astray by their own great folly. So, so to the men here, this is the last thing I'll, I'll say to you, is that God is watching you. Your ways are in full view of the Lord. And if you think that sounds maybe vaguely threatening or unnerving, then that's probably not a bad thing. Knowing that God is watching your step can be a motivator. We would like, you know, 
romance to be the only thing that ever motivates us. Just those feelings of love that well up over and over again. But sometimes knowing that someone is watching you and someone will hold you account for what you do is the only thing that may stop you in your tracks. And, and the reality is that God loves your wife way more than you do. And so if you mess around, then you'll have him to answer to. So that's the men. Now over to the women. If the, if the men are supposed to love their wives with exclusivity, then women are supposed to love their husbands with respect and with this word, anticipation. Everyone say anticipation. But at this moment, I feel I need to add in a little bit of small print because we hear a lot, right, about how women should respect their husbands. And there are some verses which can be taken out of context and twisted and misused um, and which have been in the past. Uh, So here's small print number one. Husbands should love their wives with respect as well and anticipation as well so 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 this respect this anticipation should be in the context of mutual submission ephesians 5 uh 21 small print number two wives will love their husband with anticipation as they see their husbands loving them with the kind of self-sacrificial love that jesus demonstrated on the cross see ephesians chapter 5 verse 33 small print number three wives respecting their husbands um, does not mean obeying their every whim especially when it violates scripture or healthy boundaries around the woman So I'm not saying women do everything that your husband says. Uh, Absolutely not. Sometimes respecting your husband, loving your husband with respect and anticipation will actually lead you to to stand up against him on certain matters. Sometimes very, very strongly, and that's okay. So that's all of the... all of the small print, the, the, the fine print. So let's move on to how Proverbs invites a woman to love her husband with anticipation. Now, I used the word at the beginning, respect, and that was where I was heading when I first wrote this sermon. But, but, I, but I think that the, the word respect, while it's good, it stops short of the, of the complete biblical uh, view that, that, that we have in the Bible. Uh, and that's why I use this word anticipation. And I'll explain a little bit, a little bit more about that soon. But, but this is how it looks. To love your husband with anticipation is not being quarrelsome, okay? Proverbs 27 verse 15 says this, A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Proverbs 21 verse 9 says this, it is, it is better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And in the book of Proverbs, it talks a lot about a quarrelsome wife or a nagging wife. Now, I, now I, I know that there's probably a good chance that some of you women here, that your hackles are raising even as I speak now. But I would ask you to, you know, to bear with me and to see where we go with this. Uh, it's a bit like last week where I started talking about, you know, the rod and the child in the same sentence. What does that mean? 
But, but, this, but this whole idea of a quarrelsome wife is there in the book of Proverbs multiple times. Why is this? Well, here's why I think so, and maybe later Wendy will tell me that I was either right or wrong. But, um, but the reality is, is that there are lots of stresses in life. There are lots of reasons to feel your internal temperature gaze, gauge rising and rising. And there's a good chance that your husband falls short in one or more areas of life. Maybe it's getting the bills paid on time. Maybe it's remembering your birthday. Maybe it's not getting around to fixing stuff. That's me. And so the long and the short is that when you said yes to him saying to you, will you marry me, you, you didn't know what marry meant in its full sense of the word. And you didn't know what me meant in the full sense of the word. And he didn't know what yes meant in the full sense of the word. And so in short, his, frustration, his shortcomings can frustrate you. And those frustrations can add up and add up and can squeeze out in a quarrelsome way. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. But let me say this to you is that if your husband's anything like me, how, that however disappointed you feel about your husband's shortcomings or failures, the odds are that he feels it even more sharply. He knows where he falls short. But the odds are, again, that he will never tell you this. Instead, he'll joke or sulk or vanish off to his magical man cave or he'll somehow twist his failure um, into it being your fault. Okay, these are all ways that men can respond to knowing that they have shortcomings. Because the reality is that A, your husband is proud, and B, your husband is probably not as verbally advanced in sharing his feelings as you might be. Okay? But even though that may be the case we ask the question, does he still feel these feelings? And of course, he does. He feels all of the feelings. But instead of coming out like they should, instead they squeeze out sideways in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways, usually sulking or avoidance. And so what I think that what the book of Proverbs is, is, is getting at here is that women are more adept in general at expressing themselves, and if the person within hearing distance happens to be the husband, well, then there's a good chance that he may start to feel cornered or frustrated. So don't be quarrelsome. Now, if, now of course, honesty is good, and you should express yourselves. These, these are positives, but don't use your verbal skills to cow him or to beat him down. Now, in most sitcoms, maybe you've noticed this, this is something that I've noticed, whether it's Modern Family or The Simpsons or, or The Goldbergs, that the man is generally portrayed as, an, as a harmless oaf who only ever thinks about sex, if he thinks at all, while the woman is sharp as a tack, she's really ambitious, and she's usually the one who gets her way. And so even in these sitcoms, that marriage is set up as a war, you know, you know, between the harmless, slightly simple man and the, and the super sharp woman. Now, I understand that these sitcoms are trying to redress, you know, you know, the balance of many 
many generations in which it was a man's world, but I think uh, sometimes we can overcompensate our correction. Because if a man is consistently told that he's generally a bit silly and that he should just keep his opinions to himself, then he will grow into that expectation of him. And so my advice for, your, for the wives here, and this is where the word, word anticipation comes in, is expect great things for your husband. Not so that you can nag him when he falls short, which he will, but so that he can grow into the man that God has made him to be, the father, the husband, the son. And so that's why I say, women, love your husbands with anticipation. That, that, that view, that expectation of who he can be if God gets a hold of him. The, with that sense of expectation, that sense of anticipation of, 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 of who God made him to be. And so rather than expecting your husband to fail, instead expect, instead expect him to succeed and let him see your anticipation. Because there may come a day where he grows into the, into the ideal that God has invented and created so husbands your wife is a princess who wants to be prized she's one she's a queen that wants to be loved exclusively just sometimes between the job and the laundry pile the kids and school and meals and family and in-laws she can feel worn down and she can feel anything but lovely and so the answer here isn't to look to greener pastures, but it's to focus even more on loving this very precious woman, just like Jesus loved his church. Love her with exclusivity. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, Proverbs 18, verse 22. And wives, when your husband... Uh, or think of your husband as a warrior who wants to be challenged, who wants to be affirmed and honored, just sometimes in between the nine till five and the repairs and the in-laws and the willful kids, he can feel like he sometimes maybe takes a bit of a beating. He, he needs to be reminded that he has this, that you value him and that you're praying for him every day. Love him with anticipation. Now, Right before I wrap this sermon up, I do want to say if, the, if you're a husband or a wife and you're in a harmful relationship, if you're in a, an abusive relationship in which you are at risk or in danger, or if there's been clear marital unfaithfulness, then the best thing that you can do is to talk to someone who you trust, someone who loves the Lord about what your options are. Please don't go it alone. If, if I'm saying all these things and you're, and you're thinking, but you don't know what's going on in my household, then please let someone know. Reach out. Okay, so at the start of the message, I explain this, this idea of personhood theory that's, that sometimes uh, or that somehow uh, our body and our soul are, have, have been separated into two separate things that are just stuck together. This false idea that, that the true self is the soul and the body is something to be used or cast aside. But what we read in the Bible is that our body is exalted and it's holy. And the soul and the body are inextricably linked. And so in one sense, they are one thing. 
So it's important that we love each other in marriage with our body and with our soul. Men loving our wives exclusively and keeping our bodies for them. Uh, that we allow them to satisfy us. And women, that you love your husbands with anticipation, allowing the words that come from your physical mouth to build your husband up. And so here's the connection between marriage and sex. A marriage that is trust-filled and hope-filled will generally be a marriage in which fulfilling sex happens. And what we read in the book of Proverbs is that a sign of healthy marriage in God's eyes is a satisfying sex life, both for the husband and the wife. You know, so the Bible lifts up our physical lives um, when it talks about us being made one flesh, just like Jesus uniting with the church. And so marriage life is not just about sex. You know, we know that, but it's not, not about sex. And so there are some of us here who are excited to go home and love on our spouses. We can't wait to put what you've heard from Pastor Dan into practice. But for others of us, it's not that simple. We've had years of experiencing life one way, and we've become cynical, and we've ended up weary. We no longer see the person that we married. Instead, we see an enemy. We see someone who's more of an opponent. Maybe we've hardened our shell to look after ourselves. Maybe we're tired of getting hurt. And if we're honest, we don't expect any change. And so if you see an opponent instead of a husband or wife, then start praying for your opponent. Start praying for your enemy. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you can't pray for your spouse as a husband or a wife, then start praying for them as your enemy. Because there's no more gospel-centered, God-glorifying, Jesus-emulating prayer than to pray for your enemies. This is legit. And so if if this is you, if the spark and feelings and love and emotion are all gone then I would simply say these words to you from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. Proverbs 3, 3 to 6. If you're tired and you're done, then then these words are are for you. Proverbs 3, 3 to 6. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, these words, love and faithfulness. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And then this verse that we take out of context all the time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So love with exclusivity, yes. Love With anticipation, yes, but if you aren't able to do that, if you feel like it's beyond you, then start binding love and faithfulness around your neck, writing it on your heart. Do this as an act of faith, as an act of hope. Wives, start praying for eyes to see your husband as God sees him. Husbands, start praying for the grace to see your wife as God sees her. Wives, start praying for your husbands with anticipation, even if it's nothing more than a flicker. And husbands, start praying with exclusivity for your wife. Don't pray for the husband or the wife that that you want. 
Instead, pray for your husband or wife as God sees them in his imagination. Pray for his ideal turnout. He knows the spouse that you need, yet not my will, but yours, right? Those are Jesus' words. He, he says to God what he wants, and then he says, yet not my will, but yours. And trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't trust in your husband. Don't trust in your wife. Trust in God with all of your heart. Every little last piece of this broken and calloused heart. And he will make your paths straight.